Welcome to the fourth episode of our 2021 podcast series, Bridging the Gaps, produced by FASTA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability, and the European Health Futures Forum. I'm Caroline White. And I'm Sean O'Conline. In this podcast, we'll be talking to Mary McManus, who has worked in the welfare rights advice sector in Belfast for over 20 years, and also from Sean McCabe, who is the executive manager of the Climate Justice Centre of TASC, the Irish-based think tank for action on social change. They'll both be talking to us about community wealth building and its relevance in today's context. We'll go over to the interview now. Mary, since you've just done a master's on community wealth building, if you could just give us a quick idea about what it is, that would be really helpful. Okay. Community wealth building, I would see it as a common sense approach to local economic development that's centred on ensuring that the wealth that's already in a place is kept circulating rather than leaking away. It's also about economic democracy that aims to put more ownership and more control and more of the benefit of the economy into the hands of local people. So the New Economics Foundation see this approach, they would call it plugging the leaks. So if you imagine an economy as a bucket, and if you imagine the money that's flowing into an economy, it's about plugging the leaks so that the money doesn't leak away. So it's about keeping the money and the wealth, I guess, which is the income and the assets of an economy circulating rather than leaking away. So it has five principles. And what is really key to the approach is the notion of the anchor institution. And an anchor institution is a public or not-for-profit institution that is anchored in the local area, such as a local council, a university, a hospital. And these organizations are not about to upstick and leave an area. So this is about those anchor institutions paying the real living wage, having progression routes and targeting recruitment at lower income areas and improving the prospects of local people and local economies. You were investigating the culture of the Belfast City Council and how that impacted their attitudes to development and what they should prioritize. Would you be able to talk about that a little bit? Yes, one of the principles of community wealth building is procurement power and the progressive procurement of goods and services. I'll just talk about the other principles and then go back to Belfast just to set the scene. So the progressive procurement is about how those anchor institutions use the power of their purchasing of goods and services and how they might link up in other areas. And I think what's really important about community wealth building is that there's proof of concept here where this has worked in other places. And I think that's really serves an important function to give us hope that we can do things differently. So the Preston model is the most famous of the community wealth building models. And in Preston, six of these anchors got together in 2013 to look at their procurement. They discovered that out of 750 million they had between them, when they analysed the spend to see where it was going, they discovered that 458 million was leaking out of the Preston and Lancashire economy. So they did work where they broke down their contracts to ensure that local small media enterprises and cooperatives could bid. And they introduced clauses into their tenders and they managed to relocalise 274 million back into their local economy, into Preston and Lancashire, creating real living wage jobs and retaining wealth locally to create a situation of economic resilience which gave them the highest employment rate in 15 years. This was pre-pandemic. And they also had the highest number of workers receiving the real living wage of local authorities in the Lancashire area. And this is how my interest in community wealth building came about. It's from an anti-poverty approach. 
So in 2018, I heard about Preston. I work in the community here, inner city in Belfast, providing welfare advice services. So poverty, I've watched it growing worse and worse. The onset of austerity after the banking crash, the onset of welfare reform here in the north. And I heard about this model. I thought, wow, here's something that actually could make a difference about poverty. And then I found out in the same year that Belfast City Council had been looking at this approach prior to Preston. But while we had a famous Preston model, we didn't have a Belfast model. So I looked at what happened and I discovered in Belfast that they were being quite progressive back in 2012-13. There was a report commissioned by the Centre for Local Economic Strategies where they looked at the anchor institutions in Belfast about their potential impact, but they didn't progress the work. And I discovered that the main barriers really were a lack of urgency. When I compared and contrasted Belfast with Preston and also with North Ayrshire, who released the community wealth building strategy, I discovered that there really wasn't the urgency about poverty and the leadership to resolve it that I found in those areas. Community wealth building, in areas that it's being rolled out across the water, it's very much people saying, right, we've had enough of poverty, we want to do something different about it. And I also found that the silo working of the anchor institutions or the organisations that came together in what we call the community planning process that was supposed to progress it here, they didn't come together in the way that they needed regarding procurement. And then with being here, the identity politics. Identity politics always manages to trump socioeconomic issues in the North. When you say identity politics, you're talking about nationalism and unionism and too. Yes, yes. yes. And also, I find that the council were wedded to a foreign direct investment approach. Their corporate culture is very much wedded to a neoliberal approach that didn't see the value of what we have already in the anchor institutions, which is what Preston very clearly did. And Matthew Brown, the leader of their council, will always talk about how they were constantly looking outside, looking for foreign direct investment and failing to appreciate they were already blessed with the wealth that they already had in place. So I think Belfast are again looking at an anchor network and setting that up, but they failed to appreciate the potential and continue to look for the foreign direct investment. You know, I think the politics is interesting to touch on. This is Sean McCabe of Task. Preston really has pioneered community wealth building in the UK. There's other examples in Barcelona and Cleveland, where you could say the concept initially took roots with the Democracy Collaborative back in the early 2000s. But it's interesting to look at the results of the latest UK elections. Uh, if we talk about the intersection with politics, because Labour lost ground again in the UK quite significantly, except in a lot of those councils where community wealth building is being enacted as a Labour policy. So when we talk about an antidote to the recent politics of neoliberalism, I think we do have a real opportunity with different flavours of community wealth building. And I think sometimes that's all it's about, really, because, you know, it's handy to have terms to describe these things. We are talking about cooperatives, about community business, about paying living wages, We're talking about treating people with dignity. Like none of this is rocket science, really, at the end of the day. It's just literally about having a framework that you can push back on the idea that everything has to be FDI or everything has to be controlled by big business because it's more efficient. And this is where we have to take on some of those myths about efficiency and what is efficiency. So I think people respond to these ideas. I think people want a sense of belonging. People want to be part of a community. And as Mary said at the very beginning, this is about sharing in the ownership of the economy. That makes you a very significant part of your community. So I'd be concerned that we have a long way to go in certain parts. Like I definitely think in Ireland, we have a massive cultural shift if we 
really want to see these policies enacted properly, a little bit like Mary experienced in Belfast. I reckon you would experience that all over the place. And the other big piece of this, from my perspective, is how we have eroded in the South. We've eroded the power of local councils. And so when you've gone through a series of decades of diminishing local decision-making capability, and then you say, well, actually, we're going to try to use community wealth building to empower communities. We need strong councils that can make these decisions that understand the need for the approach and have the resources then to put behind it. My own personal view on it would be about governance as much as it is about economic and about communities. Like The agency and community is phenomenal and with the right resourcing, they will be able to take the measures and it will be more equitable and we will see poverty decrease. There's no doubt about that. But the governance structure, both in terms of addressing some of the imbalance in the centralization of power, but also just resourcing and helping build the capacity of councils to understand how this approach could help them. There's a huge body of work in that. So it's very interesting to hear Mary and the perspective she's coming from and looking at it as a poverty alleviation tool. It's a really good in for this conversation, I think, in many urban areas. In rural areas, it'll have to be about addressing out-migration, giving communities real opportunities where young people can stay where they grew up. And these are very powerful messages that we can back up hopefully with the model itself. Sean, Mary mentioned there about anchor institutions, but many rural settings don't have anchor institutions. How does what Mary say apply to the country or to small communities? Yeah, well, I think that has been a challenge for the community wealth building model has been trying to make it relevant in rural areas where, like you say, there's complete lack sometimes of traditional anchor institutions, these community wealth builders, systems that have procurement that can be influenced. So I think we have to think quite innovatively if we want the model to succeed in rural areas. One potential that we've explored with task in our report, The People's Transition, looks at how climate action itself could potentially be an anchor institution. So whether that's the renewable energy services, whether it is the retrofitting of homes, whether it's the creation of materials for those processes, even things like silvopasture or agroforestry, just the managing of that process and the outputs from it could also serve as anchor institutions potentially. I think we sometimes get caught up in new terms and forget that maybe a lot of these concepts have already existed and we're just rediscovering them. And and particularly in rural Ireland, the cooperative model was community wealth builder. There's no other name for it, really. And we had local abattoirs and local creameries that all gave about 10 or 15 jobs in the area that they were in and gave the farmers a better price for their produce, relatively speaking. So There are other ways that we can look at rural industries and understand how they can be more community owned, more cooperatively owned. Then it's a question of can we change the culture back towards an emphasis on that? What I think is really interesting about what's happened across the water is that it's been done in the face of austerity where councils have had their budgets severely cut, I think 50%. And there's something about this where even I know here in the north that one of the barriers that people would say is that our councils, like in the south, don't have very much power but they still spend a lot of money. And it's about realising, okay, right, maybe we don't have as much power as we would like, but we do have some. We are an employer. And I even think about this for the organisation that I'm currently working for. We're small, right? But we have purchasing power. We are an employer. Are we paying the living wage? And listening to them across the water, listening to council leaders who are doing this in spite of Westminster, what can we do in spite of the central controls that don't really support this? For me, that's really interesting. And the fact that in Preston, they're trying to be 
self-sufficient and resilient. And another aspect of community wealth building is the finance and where they're setting up a community bank, a mutual bank. They have regional control over that they are starting with Wigan and Liverpool and that they will be able to lend to support the development of local businesses and cooperatives. And that's happening in other regions. It's happening down in Bristol, for example, that region. So I suppose for me, there's something really energizing about this approach that it's being done in areas that maybe don't have that much control, but they're trying to do the best with what they have. And I think there's a real lesson for us in that. I'm fascinated by the conversation so far because we've ranged from national governance, neoliberalism. We've talked about foreign direct investment as almost a totally accepted way of the country existing and benefiting. And both of you are talking about a a significant transformation, a significant change in the way we look at all these things. And just to bring it back to you, Sean, it looks like the successful projects in the UK have been around local authorities that have been open to change, like you mentioned specifically Labour. What's the equivalent in the South? Where's the energy going to come from for such a massive change in approach and even an understanding of what's at stake? That's a difficult question. And I totally take Mary's point about these projects like in Preston swimming against the tide. But it's also Matthew Brown. It's people in elected positions taking a lead with it. And there's also a slightly different dynamic in terms of where the power sits within a council, whether it's with the councillors or with the council executive. The sooner we have the directly elected mayor in Dublin, I'd say the faster we get to solutions of these types in Dublin, for example. But I would also think that there is a much greater awareness now, thanks to people like Mary and everyone who is pushing this idea out there into the ether. Sinn Féin have taken up a community wealth building policy here. That's the second most popular party in the country by the polls currently advocating a community wealth building approach. That's quite interesting. And let's see if others try to steal their clothes on that, because I'd love to see every party embracing this as the recovery methodology right so we're looking for a green recovery and we talk an awful lot about it but nobody's actually really throwing out the ideas that could make it fundamentally different to what came before and community wealth building is such an idea it's both green we can obviously diminish environmental impact through it because you're trying to look at globalized supply chains and very much shorten them and that has environmental benefits we're looking at social benefits obviously with living wages and people being brought into an economy in a way that maybe they haven't before but you're also looking at resilience and i think that's a really important point to touch on here and it's like mary says which is a very significant thing so the amount of money staying in lancashire increased but the overall amount of money being spent dropped due to austerity i'm not advocating austerity at all i think actually we should be spending like mad to get out of this crisis but we can build much more resilient societies and communities through this and presenting that we know it's that this pandemic and the subsequent recession is nothing compared to what's coming from the climate crisis. And so this idea of proactively building resilience is very important. There's one other point just to touch on about this, because one question I get asked a lot, and I think it's important to address it, is about protectionism. It's very easy to throw the argument of protectionism at the community wealth building model and say that, well, if you're going to keep all of the money locally, you're obviously taking it from somewhere else. And that's decreasing jobs and opportunities elsewhere. Now, 
it can be seen like that, but I think that's a very disingenuous way of looking at it. Most of the time, the supply chains that we're talking about shortening stretch into countries where workers have no rights, where they're being exploited, where if we just look, for example, imagine shortening the way we stock the shelves of our universities in Dublin in terms of their canteens and where the vegetables come from in those canteens. Now, if they were coming from North County Dublin growers who are struggling to get by at the minute, you would be actually creating really meaningful local jobs. As it is, many of them are coming from those tented villages in the south of Spain where workers are basically working at slave rates to provide vegetables into Europe. Massive trafficking issues, massive human rights abuse issues, something that we should be deeply ashamed of. So the idea with this model is it's replicable. If Dublin is doing that, then hopefully communities in North Morocco can do the exact same. And it's not a zero-sum game. Basically, if you end exploitation in one part of the world, you give people the opportunity to develop sustainably. To me, it's a kind of sustainable diversification. If you think of ecosystems, you know, you have lots of diversity in one area and the fact that it's very diverse there doesn't mean it's going to be less diverse somewhere else. You'd have it very diverse somewhere else too. And I think another interesting thing about the argument that we're somehow impoverishing people elsewhere is what the international trade agreements are doing and that if they can be adjusted so that they're fairer and we take away the clauses that allow investors to sue states and private courts and that would be a big change in the power dynamics so i think that would be good for everybody who's trying to work on these things on the ground there'd be a number of people listening to this who are saying that's a great idea but they would want to know how do i get started so what are the key ingredients or what do you need what are the catalysts or maybe mary had just put it to you i think you know, Sean was right when he said there about in places across the water, there's been the leadership and the leadership seems to have been really key getting this started. I can't speak to everywhere where it started. I do know that if it's going to start at a local council level, then you are going to need a few people that are bought into it. You don't need everybody bought in. I thought it was really interesting in a workshop I was in during the week, there was a policy officer from Preston saying that not all departments of the council necessarily know that much about this. So I think it's important to have those few key people. But I'm interested in what I can do as a citizen. Do you know what I mean? If you've got councils maybe that aren't really that amenable to this, for me, I speak to the local councillors about this and I talk to them about what I learned during my research and I try and advocate for it and I lobby for it. But I also have a group I belong to here. We're looking at what does it look like from the ground up? What does community wealth building look like? And what can we do? And in the North, we already have some work happening in that cooperative development that's already going on. We also have campaign for a community bank. For me, it's about seeking out allies and trying to form collaborations, looking at what's already going on and trying to push that with the local councillors, but also push our own work. Like we have here another approach to the economy as well with the repair cafes and that sort of reuse and bringing in the circular economy into community wealth building. And Sean, I know you and Caroline, you're aware of it as well. I don't know if you are, Sean, about an organisation called Collaboration for Change that is trying to bring about progressive movements and it's just about linking in with other people, I think, that are interested in this approach. I think you're right. I had the unusual experience recently of putting myself forward for a local election. What really struck me was as I went out into the community, just the agency 
that exists, like the amount of people with incredible talents. I think we've been fooled into thinking that we are at our most productive when we're sitting at a desk, a work desk, you know, and that idea of connecting and acting on the agency that's within communities. A lot of those experiences actually of knocking on doors and realizing just how much a community can do by itself has shaped the people's transition work that we've done in task, which is grounded in developing climate solutions through a community wealth building approach. But it also looks at using climate action as a tool of sustainable development as your anchor institution, asking the question of in the the future that we're building, will the assets of climate action be owned by communities or will they be owned by corporates? And I think that's a really important, urgent question that we need to fully understand the implications of right now because these decisions are being taken right now and they will have very long-term ramifications. And so when we published a report, we were supported by AIB to roll out two pilot projects, one in Ardra, which is ongoing, and the other in Fibsborough, which is in its initial stage. And so the Ardra in Donegal project is very interesting now because there's about 60 people involved in the community. We've just finished a phase where we have mapped the community quite Literally, we've mapped where the pubs are, where the shops are, just understanding where all of the community focal points are, who's in the community, how does the community organise itself. And we've also looked at how the policy landscape and how does it interact with the community. We did that in two months and now we're in the dialogue phase, which is basically trying to get people talking about the needs and aspirations of the community. Now, this is all related to climate action, but we haven't mentioned climate once yet. We're talking about what the community wants, what the community needs. And then the third phase, which we'll move into in July, is focused on co-creation of solutions that are climate smart, but are focused on addressing the community needs and are focused on co-ownership. So that sort of community wealth building idea. So really what we want to do in the people's transition model, it's based on three assumptions as we face the climate crisis head on in the next decade. The first is that people just don't care enough about climate change and we're not going to change that in the time that we have left. And if we waste the time we have left trying to change people to really be passionate about these issues, we won't succeed because the changes need to happen so rapidly. And then the other key point here is that people care a lot about local development. They might not care about climate change, but they care about local development. So it's, the onus is actually on the people designing the climate action to make it about local development rather than try to make people care about climate action. That's that flip that we're trying to achieve. And obviously, we're not in any way there yet. We're only getting started, and it remains to be seen if we can do it. What we hope to arrive at is a costed plan for one or more climate actions that address community needs in a cooperatively owned community wealth building way. That's only a plan, right? So it comes back to Mary's point about leadership. We need then, whether it's local or national government, to row in behind and support the community in advancing these plans. So in lieu of having the opportunity to just drive the changes from the top, what we're trying to do is build a constituency of demand from the bottom for this in Ardra and Fibsborough and see what happens. I'm just wondering, and it could put it to you as a challenging question, really, is community wealth and the word wealth a misnomer? It could just as easily have been called community well-being. Do you find calling it wealth is a challenge or how do you explain that to people when you're talking to? Maybe I'll put the question to you, Mary. Yeah, thanks, Sean. I actually find the word wealth in there really important because I have spent so many years trying to get people to understand how bad poverty is in Belfast, right? And I always felt like I would give talks about welfare reform and how it was impacting people. Just 
trying to get the message out there because sometimes working in a welfare rights advice center you feel privy to the most awful secrets of how government is treating people but what i find about community wealth building is it shifts the focus from poverty to wealth and it's actually not poverty that's the problem it's the wealth that's the problem I love that lens. And that's given me, I feel, a framework in which I can now talk about the problem, but also talk about solutions to that problem. You know, and I think that's really, really important. So it's about the wealth in terms of income, the asset not being shared between people and the ownership of that wealth being the issue, not poverty. Is there cooperation across the island around community wealth building? I'd say, well, first of all, the fact that myself and Mary are meeting for the first time here, it says that cooperation across the island could probably be better. <laughs> it's probably not for want of willingness to. It's just sometimes you have your head down and you're just trying to get your own bits sorted out. But yeah, absolutely. I think uh, maybe there's call for a global and all-island community wealth-building network. But just to touch back really quickly on what Mary was saying, because it relates to the border region, and I definitely think that community wealth-building has huge potential across the whole island, but particularly at the border at a time like this. I feel like it's very important what Mary just said about wealth and how we talk about these things and recognising that the drivers of inequality aren't at the bottom. The drivers of inequality are at the top. And so, so often, and especially in the last 30 years, the lens that we've used is a charitable lens. It's one that looks at a very narrow Mm -hmm. definition of poverty and talks about how people have to be uplifted from it through the kindness of those above them. When really we should be looking at it in terms of emancipation and removing the multidimensional barriers that cause the deprivations that people face and also extract the wealth that exists within their communities and channel it up to the very few who don't actually need all that much money. And so I think A, using the term wealth is very good, but also looking at it through a power lens and a class lens are also very important. We shy away from these concepts. You know, we empowerment is a word we use, but we don't actually focus in on power and where power is held. We also don't look at class as much as we should because we have a very rigid class structure I think in both countries and we kind of just pretend that it doesn't exist so I think that using those terms and making sure that what we're doing is inclusive and that we're listening to people across all areas of society but we do try to bias our participative models so that they include people who are typically not included coming back to the border region I'm convinced that with the right leadership and the right way of messaging on this the model can be effective anywhere Mm. and i think we should be looking to do it in areas where it's most badly needed to begin with so whether that's the midlands with board namona pulling out or whether it is along the border region the reason i picked the two communities we did for the people's transition model was we wanted to do it in areas where there was an existing social fabric that we could build on because it's our first attempt of the model but i would hope to very quickly roll out the model to communities may be facing greater levels of challenge. Like Sean, I believe that it's a model that can be adapted to different areas. And it'll be really interesting to see those two projects, Sean, you're talking about in Sidborough and Ardra, what comes of them. And one thing I, I think is really interesting is with regard to the pandemic and you, just what you were saying there about class and power. One thing that I'm puzzled about is how do we channel all that charitable given into a more of an activist approach? How do we channel that into creating long-term change so that people aren't in poverty in the first place? And I think there's real potential with that because I'm sure the people who want to give and want to help people, they might want to change their situation in the long term rather than just in the short term. We should give some thought to how we can channel that. I don't know, Mary, if you're aware of the controversy recently here in the Republic about the 
cuckoo funds buying up huge estates. Yeah, mm -hmm. And they've obviously been doing it for a while, but one came to mind where a large fund bought up, I don't know, a couple of hundred houses in Maynooth at a time when people are finding it so hard to buy a house. So they just buy up the whole thing and then they dictate what price housing is. The really interesting thing was what transpired after it because there was such an outcry against it but it turns out that, first of all, the state agencies, NAMA, have been doing this anyway. They've been selling mm. off uh, tons of bulk properties. And then the other thing, the government had to go into a tizzy and bring in legislation to try and prevent this happening. They raised the stamp duty to try and deter them, but they only did it for houses and not apartments. Basically, there's an acceptance at government level that we need these foreign funds to pay for building, basically. And it goes so totally contrary to what you two have just been saying about keeping the wealth in the community. And yet, at a total national level, we kind of accept this. It's weird. I don't know, Sean, you mentioned, like, a lot of it is about high-level government policy, I think, and how we accept it. I think absolutely. Well, particularly with the housing issue, I think it's the 2013 Finance Act and the establishment of the Real Estate Investment Trust that really we're seeing the consequences of that now, which obviously in itself was a consequence of the housing policy that existed for the decade before that. But if you think of housing as a potential anchor institution, it's massive, cooperatively owned houses. The other big fear that I have is these vulture funds have for some time and around the world and will in Ireland begin to circle renewable energy. If we don't have the right policies in place, all of this transition that we're going into, the benefits from it will accrue to the most wealthy people in the world, rather than as climate justice would require being shared broadly and contributing to a shared prosperity. So I think there's a lot to be done, but I think we have to make quite a bit of noise about the need to ensure that, that people own the transition. It links in with a number of areas that pastors were really, really emphasizing, you know, the whole money situation, public banking, all that kind of stuff. All really comes back down to who owns it and where it should be owned. In Leitrim, this huge controversy about wind turbine, they're essentially a good idea, but they're not owned by the community. Some state organizations and others, they just come in and they give a pittance to the community a few hundred euros to the local mm. football club uh, whereas they're making millions from every turbine like the communities don't know it's just a, there's a lot of ignorance uh, there so there's another whole role there about informing communities yeah. about the strength transition that you talk yeah. about you're seeing across the water the municipally owned energy companies like Hackney, they're starting to look at district heating and i know preston's starting to mention district heating as well so the models are common now that was Mary McManus, who is a welfare rights advisor based in Belfast, and who recently did a master's degree focusing on community wealth building. We also heard Sean McCabe, who is the executive manager of the Climate Justice Centre of TASC and author of the report The People's Transition, Community-Led Development for Climate Justice. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends on social media and spread the word about our series, Bridging the Gaps. Please tune in also at the end of June for our next episode. Many thanks to Mary McManus and Sean McCabe for their participation. And as usual, to Leisha Kelly for her music on the harp. Or Mwichas Liv Galair agus Slán Tamil.